0: It's unlocking other people's mattering, that then we feel like we matter. And to me, it is just, it's the human experience. It's these small mattering moments that say, I see you, I value you, and you add value to my life.
1: Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. We have such a great episode for you today. Jennifer Wallace is here and this conversation is so important. She just wrote a book about this feeling of never being enough. And we're going to get into a lot of things that I think you'll relate to. And I think you'll find just a lot of wisdom in this conversation. Before we do, I just wanted to let you know that I've been having so much fun in the quilt membership. I meet with these amazing women once a week, once a week, we meet for two hours on Thursdays and there's just so much happening in there. Collaborations, referrals, networking, supporting each other. And then once a month, I've been coaching and giving people just this space to share and I'm watching the breakthroughs and it's amazing. If you wanna join us, you can go to kathyheller.com quilt. There's so much fun in store. We're gonna have a live event as well for members of the quilt, early in 2024, so I look forward to that. So come join us, kathyho.com slash quilt. So much fun. So as I said, I was so happy that Jenny Wallace is here. She's an award-winning journalist, New York Times bestselling author, co-founder of the mattering movement, and social commentator covering parenting and lifestyle trends. She's a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, and in August, she released her incredible book, Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic, and what we can do about it. This is a book that I saw, and I right away wanted to read it because it examines the rise of toxic achievement culture that's been dominating the lives of kids and parents as well, and she provides a powerful practical framework for fighting back. As a mom, this is constantly on my mind, and I know so many of us are overachievers who've been conditioned to believe that our worth is in our accomplishments, so I'm really glad that Jenny put this out in the world. Definitely go give it a read, and if you feel like this episode is impactful, then please share it with somebody else as well. Talking to Jenny was such a breath of fresh air. She's wise, she's kind, it was fascinating, just everything that she had to say. You're going to really enjoy this, so without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Jenny Wallace. Hi, Jenny, I'm so glad that you're here. I told you before we started officially that I personally really wanted to have you on the show.
0: Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: It's great that you're here. We're going to dive into this new book because it's really the, probably the crux of the the thing that I think gets in the way and feels the heaviest for me and probably most of the people that I know. But before we even get into the book, I want to give people some context into sort of where you were on the journey that this even became your work. Like, What was the aha moment? where you went from being who you were before to the person who knew that you had to share this message.
0: Mm. So I would say I it's been a journey ever since I became mother 17 years ago. I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, how, you know, I really wanted to be my very best self for my kids. I wanted to do the work and and figure out who I was and how I could best raise them. And I also thought about going back to getting a PhD, not so that I could practice, but so that I could know the latest theories and best practices for raising kids. So that gives you a little bit of a window into the perfectionist that I was for many years. And then I got into print. I was a TV journalist for 60 Minutes producing there and then had my kids and then went moved over to print And I was writing articles about a lot of things that I was struggling with myself and trying to find answers for, or things that I knew my friends were struggling with, or things that I thought people might be struggling with. And I think here's where it started, really. It was an article I wrote for a newspaper about the roots of perfectionism and how to dampen it in our children. And what I learned from that is that perfectionism is... Developed one very strong pathway is through the mother and through modeling the mother and sort of internalizing the mother's own needs to be perfect. And so when I found that out, I thought, wow, I really have to do some work. Right. I, I want to prevent that in my own kids. And the leading researcher on perfectionism was somebody that I worked with very closely. And so fast forward to 2019, my oldest was going into high school. And I realized I had four years left. How should I be spending my energy as a parent? And what should I be focusing on? And at the same time, I wrote an article for the Washington Post that found students in what researchers call high achieving schools. Those were public and private schools around the country. Those kids were now officially an at-risk group, meaning they were over two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety and depression and 2 to 3 times more likely to suffer from substance abuse disorders than the average American teen. And so that's what started the journey. I wanted to figure out how I could buffer my kids go to competitive schools. What could I do in my home? How did we get here? And what can I do in my home to buffer against the pressure? Oh my god.
1: I mean it's so important, it's so big. It's so big and you said so many things that we could spend hours talking about and still wouldn't be enough. One being this idea that this gets passed down often from the mother's modeling of this. And this really important sort of warning that you're sending out by doing all this research and putting all this in the world, you're letting people know that there is a real danger. And I mean, acute levels of anxiety and just such a diminishing level of well-being in all of this. And so then it feels so futile. It's like, so where are we actually getting by putting ourselves in these environments or setting these crazy goals? You know, what's the cost and what's the benefit? Where do we wind up? And so, I mean, let's just start. You wrote a whole beautiful book on it that came out in August, Never Enough, When Achievement Culture Becomes Toxic and What Can We Do About It. So one thing we'll do is talk to you and then put the link to the book in the show notes and we'll tell people at the end how to get the book. But in beginning that conversation, let's see if we can understand even more why it's so toxic. Because at first glance, it sounds a little surprising. It's like, oh, well, people who are working on goals or you know, reading lots of books and trying to do well in school or trying to do well at their job. I mean, at first it sounds like good for them. They're crushing it, right? So it's a little bit of a surprise that it turns out to be so highly correlated with really giant amounts of anxiety and sadness. It's like, well, that's that's interesting. Um, so let's understand that better. And then let's see if we can start to unpack why that is, and then we'll unpack what we maybe can do about it.
0: Great. I mean, I will tell you that this book is not an anti-achievement book. This is not an anti-ambition book. This is a book that tells parents, gives them the tools and the mindset for healthy ambition in their kids and in themselves. Okay. And I think the reason that achievement becomes toxic, what I found in my reporting and what I found in the research, is when our sense of self is so entangled in our performance and our extrinsic, val- you know, goals and values, that's when it becomes toxic. When our sense of self, when our sense of worth and value, rides and falls on our accomplishments or our failures. So it doesn't have to be that way. And I actually, I went in search of the healthy achievers mm. to find out what they had in common. I wanted to know for myself, for my kids what did their parents focus on at home? What was school like? What were their relationships like with their peers? So I found about 14 things or so that these healthy achievers had in common and I outline it in the book. But what it boils down to is this idea of mattering. These healthy achievers had a high level of what researchers call mattering. That means they felt valued for who they were deep at their core by their families, by their friends, by their communities, away from their achievements. And importantly, they were depended on to add meaningful value back to their families, to their friends, and to their communities. The kids I met who seemed to be struggling the most were those who felt like their worth was contingent on their performance, that they only mattered when And the other group that surprised me that also were struggling were kids who felt like they mattered. Their parents told them they mattered, but they were never relied on or depended on to add value back to anyone other than themselves. And so what these kids lacked was social proof that they mattered. They heard it in words, but they didn't see it. So that's what I found, that there is something going on in our culture today that is eroding this sense of mattering in students and actually in their parents. And so I tried to get to the roots of our achievement culture. What is causing this? And it is this unmet need to matter. And I Hmm. spoke with economists and historians and social psychologists and sociologists to find out, you know, what's happened, what my childhood growing up in the seventies and early eighties was so different than my children's childhood. You know, I wanted to know why and there are a few reasons why, but the real why that resonated with me the most was the economic story. And what I mean by that is when I was growing up in the seventies and early eighties, life was generally more affordable. Housing was more affordable. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable there was more slack in the system. So a parent, my parents, could be relatively relaxed because they knew that even with some setbacks, even with me making mistakes and and shifting, and that I would most likely be able to replicate my childhood, if not do even better than my own parents did. That's the American dream. And that's what it's been like for generations. But modern parents today are facing a very different economic reality. We are seeing the first generation millennials who are not doing as well as their parents. Over the last several decades, we've seen huge income inequality. We've seen the crush of the middle class. We are feeling the fears and anxieties of this uncertain future for our kids. And so without parents even knowing it, We have become, in the words of researchers, social conduits, meaning we're absorbing these pressures in our environment, these fears and anxieties about the future, and it's coming out in the way we intensively parent. And, you know, this is not to blame parents. These forces are bigger than any one family, any one school, and any one community. But what I'm hoping with this book is to help parents get a sense of context as to why they're feeling these pressures. What researchers have said to me and what I found in my reporting is that parents today are betting big that early childhood success, getting their kid into a quote unquote good college will act like a kind of life vest yeah. in a sea of economic uncertainty. So we don't know what the jobs are going to be like. We don't know what their futures with climate change. There's so much uncertainty. But we hope that just strapping on this life vest of a good college will keep them afloat. But what the research is finding is that that safety vest for too many kids is acting more like a leaded vest and it's drowning them. And there is a better way. There is a better way to protect our children and their futures.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it's important to lay all of this out. And I can, every thing you're saying I I can like feel the evidence of it I can recall four conversations that all add up to all of those pieces and at the same time from where I've been sitting interviewing 800 people on a podcast I'm like and this has nothing to do with the real core of what you're saying but it's it's interesting it's like I'm just feeling like what matters more is entrepreneurs you know like I don't even see where college fits in, you know, having interviewed all these people. It's so much more about innovating and coming up with ideas. And it's harder and harder to get into college, let alone forget the economics. It's like, it's crazy just to get into, we live in California, to get into any UC school is like a miracle, right? So that's a whole other part of it, which just makes the achieving even harder, right? It's just the standard is insane. We had two friends whose kids were at two different high schools, both valedictorians. Didn't get into state schools. One got deferred to Cornell and waited a year to go and nothing else. You know, it's just fascinating times. So that's another factor in the equation. And then I also think about movies like my, one of my top three favorite movies is Dead Poet Society. And I think about this movie with this gorgeous cast of, of actors. And I, I think of this kid who seemingly in the movie has all the money in the world. But again, it's exactly what you're saying. It's the. That is who he is to his father is a certain version of what his father wants him to be. And I think about my own father who has always struggled with deep, deep, dark depression and anxiety, became deaf at the age of four, grew up in Brooklyn with no money. Now he's like 77 years old and achieved and achieved and achieved so that his, his parents, he's an only child would one day be proud of him. And the day never came. The day never came. And. Got a doctorate, even though he's deaf, did all these things, worked so hard to win, win over his parents. And it goes back to this theme of mattering. And so there's just so much good stuff to talk about that is a heaviness that we don't all have to keep carrying that we can set down and look at. And so everything we're talking about, I think is part of the, the, the soup that like, Someone in your life, who, whoever is listening, you, you yourself either relate or you relate to some aspect of this. And I want to just even look at those two words, never enough, because you started by saying, you know, when I became a mom, I wanted to be the best mom. And I talk to moms every single day. And by the end of the year, I've spoken to thousands and thousands of moms. And that's the crux of it is always like, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And. What is that about, like the never enough? And how can we pull over to the side of our life and ever get to a place where it is enough?
0: Well, I have a whole chapter in the book on this because it is so critical. That never enough feeling is a social construct. That is a culture and a society that is increasing its demands on mothers. Yeah. And it began this uh, researcher, Sharon Hayes talked about how mm-hmm. intensive parenting, this idea that, you know, a mother is the one who's in charge of their child's psychological health, academic health, all of this, that mothers should be one person villages. She argues that it was an idea that came about really in the seventies as more white mothers were choosing to go to work. Mm-hmm. And society was struggling, society, a.k.a. men, <laughs> were struggling <laughs> to the sense of what does it mean to be a mother and to also want to work outside of the home? And so she argues that the expectations, the social expectations that were put on mothers was really a culture that was struggling with the idea that women didn't want to be home full-time, and actually wanted to work and pursue their careers and motivation. So when I learned that, it was kind of like an aha moment because you know, it wasn't like I was born thinking that a mother had to be this perfect, sacrificial human. But I will tell you what really resonated with me in the research for this book. And this I think will surprise people listening because it certainly surprised me and, and really made me rethink my role as a mother. The number one intervention for any child in distress is to make sure the primary caregivers, most often the mothers, to make sure their well-being, their mental health, their support system is intact because a child's resilience rests fundamentally on the resilience of their mother. (laughs) And mother's resilience rests fundamentally on her relationships, the depth and support of those relationships. We are sold a bill of goods by the wellness industry that light this $60 candle, drink this tea, download this meditation app and you will be resilient. Those are certainly great and can be stress reducers, but they will not give you the yeah. resilience you need to be, as researchers call us, the first responders to our kids' struggles. We need people in our Uh-oh. own life, one or two or three friends who we can be vulnerable to, who we can open up to, who we feel unconditionally loved and supported, just like the people we try to be for our own kids. It wasn't that the parents I met in these communities didn't have friends. It was that they didn't often have the time and the bandwidth to invest in their relationships so that they could be sources of support. And it's a profound thing. And ultimately what I'm saying is that for our children, we need to invest in our relationships outside of the home Mm -hmm. for their benefit. It's so countercultural, but I'll give you one last image. It is not about putting your oxygen mask on first. It is about having one or two or three people in your life who know you intimately, who can see you gasping for air and who reach and put that oxygen mask on for you. That's a whole nother level of friendship. That's huge. It really is
1: huge. Good, right.
0: And yeah. It's changed so much about the way I parent and prioritizing myself. It's, yeah, you know, it's not like I didn't become selfish, but I became, in the words of another psychologist, a selfist, meaning that myself, my mattering, my worth, my value yeah. is just as important as everyone else in my home.
1: Yeah. Everything you just said, I mean, what you laid out, you know, piece by piece is, it all builds into you know the the tornado that it is because i i agree that the way that we unconsciously sometimes behave as women who work is that on this subconscious level it's like well if i'm going to have a career then i have to crush it in every way because the fact that i'm leaving the house means i can't just be okay i have to be all the things, you know, my husband is a lawyer. And when we were first married, I only was working part time as a songwriter. And then my career sort of took off. And we would go to dinner with other friends. And they would say to me, gosh, you know, how are you juggling it all? You know, and we have three children, and no one's ever asked him that. Nobody asks him how he's juggling it. You know, he just goes to work and comes home when he comes. And it's just like, Meanwhile, I'm reading every book on conscious this and mindful this and wanting to make sure everything's organic and making sure that I, I'm at drop off and I'm at pickup because I'm going to not be able to be there for this thing. So, you know, it's, you're starting in a deficit. You're starting in a feeling that you're in a deficit. And so you're right. There's all of that. Everything you just said is such an aha. It's such a mic drop to think that somebody in your life, one or two somebody's in your life knows you well enough to put the oxygen mask on you, you know, that you've set up a support system where you have that in your life. And I think about what I started out to build when it went through 11 rounds of fertility treatment and creating a really successful business. And then you stop and you go, wait, where in my day is there quality of life for me to rest? Like, all I do is produce results, (laughs) And everyone else tells you you're doing the most amazing job ever, as opposed to hang on a minute, slow down, you know, go outside, force yourself to not take on that other project. Okay, so you can also volunteer at the school. Okay, so you can also work on that philanthropy. How about don't? So that's why I reached out and said, we have to have this conversation. So I'm curious for you personally, since you, you know, admitted, you know, you were this person yourself. How has your life changed? How do you actually um, become aware when you've realized in a moment that you're now abandoning yourself again?
0: And then what's your course correct? Yeah. So I'll give you a few examples. So, you know, I read this research on resilience and spoke with the leading researcher on it about four and a half years ago before COVID. So I was starting to think about it. And then COVID hit. And I was trying to write a book. I had piles of research, piles of interviews, three kids who were Zooming for school, yeah. you know, with their own ups think? and downs. I mean, it was hazmats being worn to supermarkets like it yeah, was. we had that. Right. And so I decided with my friends. So I I'm lucky to have very long term friendships in my life. And two of my closest friends that I worked with at 60 Minutes, we set up a weekly Zoom. I told them about the research. And actually, it's in the book. There's research that came out of the Mayo Clinic, and then it's been replicated, that it just takes one hour of deliberate time per week to give us that sense of being seen and cared Mm. for. So I said to them, we're putting in a weekly hour. And we did at least one week, and sometimes we would do more, but we became you know in the words of the researcher, this is like a cringy expression, and I'd love to find a better one for it, but go to people like who are the people that you will go to when s h i t it's the fam who are the people you call who are the people you text from the bathroom asking for advice and these were my two, and so not only did they hear about my struggles and I heard about theirs, they reminded me, you know, my friend Katie would say, you do not need to come out of COVID with a perfectly polished book. You need to come out of COVID psychologically intact and your family psychologically intact and healthy. That is the goal. And so like we would just zoom out for each other. We would be there when, you know, some parents were doing like extra tutoring or whatever it was, creating pods so that their kids didn't fall behind. And my friend would say, I would say, I don't want to do this. And she would say, you don't have to, or, you know, I don't want to sign up for travel soccer. And I'd feel the stress and contagion, you know, out of COVID. And I would say, remind me why we're not doing travel soccer. And she says, because remember, you and I talked about this. You want your weekends with your family. So what these close friendships do is not only are they like a receptacle for our stresses and worries and act almost like a shock absorber for the ups and downs of life. What they also do is they remind us of our values and our value, our unconditional worth. And I am so grateful that I had them in my life. And actually my friend Katie passed away recently. She was, I know. Oh my God. 30 years, but she was the most, one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. It's so sad, but what she gave me was a blueprint or how to create these deeply intimate relationships. And I'm just so grateful. And um, so I take her with me everywhere.
1: I mean, it's so beautiful and that's so, so sad. And I felt like that was watching a movie and we all became in love with this character and we find out this character doesn't make it to the end of the movie and it's like so sad. Um, but it's so beautiful what you mean to each other. And I saw that you co-founded this, the Mattering Movement, which is a community that offers a solution to this never enough feeling and provides these tools to parents and students. And I love what you just said, that we could all have our own mini movement, which is to make that hour happen every week and make that time so that you can be witnessed in whatever season you're in. And it already just, this listening to that feels like, ah. Uh, what a relief, you know, that is to get off the nonstop, I need this. I, I remember speaking to one of our uh guests, uh, Dr. Rick Hansen, and he was talking about this Tibetan, like this parable about these ghosts with the insatiable bellies and these ghosts just never feel full and they just need more and need more and need more. And he was saying like, that's, you know, one of the crux of the Buddhist principles is this feeling of being in this feeling of enough in every moment. And so, I mean, this is thousands of years of a wisdom tradition that has, it spans all socioeconomic demographics, you know, it has to do with just this feeling of this search for enough that just humankind can get into this. I need more Piles of things. I need more followers. I need more validation. I need whatever it is. And then it's never enough. And, um, it's an amazing thing to stop and be like, what if this is enough? And then you're like, wow, it's actually amazing. Like, whatever it is, like, do you need the next bigger living room? Do you need the next bigger card? Is there really peace in that? There can be elements of beauty in things and in. Whatever the more is, but the deepest feeling of satisfaction is in being with what's right here and, and fully honoring it.
0: As you were talking, I was thinking about what researchers call, you know, after the drive for food and shelter, it is the instinct to matter that drives human behavior for better and for worse. So when we feel mm-hmm. like we matter for who we are at our core, we show up to the world in ways that are so positive. We want to add value. We want to be a great neighbor. We want to achieve because we want to make an positive impact on the world. When we feel like we don't matter, we try to fill that void with material goods. We turn inward. We try to fill the void with material goods because we hope that that will make us appear to be enough to others. Mm-hmm. And when that need is going unmet, we can turn against ourselves with anxiety and depression and turn to substances to numb that feeling. Yeah. Or we can act out in ways that force people to take notice of us. You know, a, a school shooter to, like is the most tragic example. I don't matter, I'll show you I matter. So learning about that, you know, you were talking about the the never enough, the material goods. One thing that I found fascinating in the research was that our values impact our well-being. So researchers have found roughly a, a dozen core values that we all have, and they split them up into intrinsic and extrinsic values. Intrinsic values are want to be a good neighbor. I want to, you know, become a better person. I want to be spiritual or religious or whatever it is. Part of something bigger than myself. Extrinsic value, extrinsic goals are like career success, material goods, all of that. And the reason that this is so important for us to focus on what values that are being activated. So we all have these same core values, but depending on the pond we're swimming in, our environment, certain values will be triggered. And if you're in an environment that's really triggering the materialistic values, you will have that never-enough feeling. So that's why it's so important to be intentional mm-hmm. in our homes, with our friends, yep. with our children about the intrinsic values, because those are the ones that lead to well-being, and the materialistic values are linked with anxiety, depression and <sighs> self abuse. So this is why, to me, the mattering movement and teaching parents, giving them the tools to create cultures of mattering at home and teachers to create cultures of mattering in their schools and really in communities are now adopting this community-wide cultures of mattering. I mean, to me, it is the solution to loneliness, anxiety.
1: Yeah, it's such a beautiful insight. And I wasn't thinking that this is what, the crux of the conversation would lead to as sort of the medicine. And I love that this is what you found to be in the research. And we had Dan Buettner on the show a couple of years ago and I've stayed in contact with him and now I'm watching his gorgeous documentary series on Netflix about the blue zones. And so I've been talking about the blue zones since I heard about them a few years ago. Like my friends don't talk about the blue zones again, but I'm watching this documentary series. And I think I was on episode like five last night. And he's saying the exact same thing that you're saying about how longevity, you know, all the good things, you know, mattering longevity, it all comes down to he was saying those little interactions in your day with your mailman, the barista at the coffee shop, just the way in which you're in community with other people and you transact smiles with each other and you transmit good feelings with each other. And that in so many ways, you can live a life without seeing anyone. You can just use an app on your phone to get your groceries. You don't have, there's just so many ways in which you're isolated and you think it's convenience, but what winds up happening is this deep loneliness. And then all these tiny ways that you could impact someone's day, you now don't have that in your life. You know, I was thinking actually, Just the other day, I was leaving, I have three daughters, and I was leaving their elementary school and thinking how I'm always really my most happy when I'm there. But now in talking to you, I'm like, oh, I think I know why that is, because it's not about my work. I enjoy being seeing the people, the crossing guard. I really like all of that interaction. It feels very beautiful and peaceful and simple and loving and... I guess it's community, right? And, you know, we're we're preparing for Yom Kippur. So I love going to services, you know? And I'm like, why don't we go more? You know, because when we go, it's the community. Yes, it's also God, but it's the community thing that is so beautiful. And I'm just so struck by this because it's so true that that is the deepest pain that I always hear from people is this feeling of like, who am I to do this? Who am I? Who am I? It's like this, I'm not enough thing which is why it's never enough, because I'm not enough. And what are some ways that you talk about in the book that we can make small adjustments besides having an hour with two friends, which sounds like an amazing idea? What are some other things we can do to see that we impact people's lives and to get these little hits of yummy, peaceful connectedness?
0: So I was doing a webinar with a corporation and a 30-year-old asked on the Zoom, you know, there are weeks that I really feel like I'm not enough. You know, he was talking about this, that I don't feel worthy. And is there a mantra that I could say to myself in those moments? And I said, I have something better. I said, when you go to the cafeteria today and you get your lunch, and there's the nice man or woman who's always oh. smiling at you and handing you and telling you to have a good day to say to them, you know, these days have been long and hard, but knowing that I'm going to get a smile from you and this delicious food, boy, does that make a difference in my day? Boy, do you make a difference to me? So it's unlocking other people's mattering that then we feel like we matter. And to me, it is just, it's the human experience. It's these small mattering moments that say, I see you, I value you, and you add value to my life. And we can choose in little moments to, I'll give you just a little exchange. I live in New York City and I was taking Metro North up to a a talk in Connecticut. And I didn't have time to grab breakfast. And so I went into the little bodega in the train station and there was a gentleman there who had a suit on and uh, he was beautifully putting these clementines in a pile, but he was really careful about how he placed them. And I said, oh, these clementines, this will be so delicious. I'm gonna take a bunch of them in case I need a snack later too. And he said, you know, I saw these and I knew my customers would want them. And so that's why I got them. He said, this is a small business. I know my customers. I wanna make them happy every day. I'm always thinking about what they might need. And I said to him, boy, you really made an impact on my day. You really, and when I was opening those Clementines, I was thinking he mattered to me. And I told him he mattered. On the same train, on the way home, a gentleman in his early 20s came on screaming and ranting and shouting and cursing at a young woman who had rejected his advances before he got on the train. This was all on the same trip, the same day. And he was screaming to her, I'm a member of the Crips, the gang. And you know, and I will kill you. We will kill you. And I thought this was a man whose need to matter was going unmet. And he was screaming, I am worthy. I will prove to you I'm worthy. And actually the conductor on the car went up to him and he said, sir, sit down. I could see that you've been agitated. Sit down. Have a seat here. You're safe here. This is a nice, quiet car for you. And the man that O-M-G. was five foot one, and the guy that was screaming was I don't know six four. And he he made that man feel like oh he my. God. And he said to the woman who was agitating him, he was like, "Ma'am, you both can't be in the car. I suggest maybe you go to the front car. There are more seats there. Find yourself a window seat." And he stayed, and everyone in that car stayed silent as the man coming off of the steam, watching his video without his earbuds on, just full-on a video, (laughs) blasting in the car. And we were all like, this is a man who really just needs a moment, and we need to just be there. And the conductor made him feel like he mattered, and he calmed him down. Oh my gosh, that's such a crazy,
1: I mean... These are things that happen all the time, but that conductor was amazing. And a friend of mine just told me this story last week. He was saying that he was driving to pick up his kids from school and this guy cut him off and he got really mad. So he sped up to like, see who, I don't know, people get whatever road rage. And so then he cut the guy off and then they were kind of like cutting each other off and it was really not safe. And then they came to a red light and so my friend pulled up next to this guy and rolled down the window and he was like ready to like scream at this guy and I guess the guy rolled down the window and he goes he goes what are you doing and he goes what are you doing and they were about to like curse each other and like the other guy not my friend said to my friend I'm having a horrible day you know this happened this happened this happened he starts to like tear up and my friend goes no it's okay you're good I have bad days all the time and next thing like before the light turns green, he goes We loved each other. He's like, I was ready to rip his head off. Next thing I know, he tells me he's having a bad day. He goes instantly. I just wanted to like give him a hug. And I was like, that is one of the most powerful little stories that I won't forget because he just told me this the other day. But I was like, isn't it fascinating? Like just how reactive people are. And like it goes to your point. It's like someone cuts you off. And I guess his feeling was like, he must think that I. You know, I'm nothing. You don't do that to someone like me, right? I got to prove myself to you now. Like, don't you dare. And then he finds out this guy's having a hard day and he's like instantly, Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, and it's, you come back to your senses. It, it's like, if you're walking around with this loaded ammunition of like, I don't feel like I matter. Then anything becomes like, it's, it, it's just a grenade that goes off because you're just already walking around in this feeling of, I'm not enough. And that is so
0: important to be aware of, just to really be aware of that. Once you learn about mattering, you will never forget it. And you will come to feel like it's a responsibility. Say more about how people, what they think mattering
1: means, but what it really means and how we really need to set up our lives so that we know it all the time.
0: So I do think mattering is pretty intuitive. So I think when you learn about it, that everyone has this instinct to feel valued. And when people aren't feeling valued, they can doubt in horrible ways. But what I found so powerful, like with the conductor moment, was that the conductor could have kicked him off the train. Instead, the conductor fed his mattering and the guy sat down. And That's at the right. end of the train ride, he said to the conductor, he didn't thank him, but he tried to make small talk. And he was like, so if I'm going to take the train, which train would you take? I mean, it was like a teddy bear talking to this conductor. And so I think now the way I see it in my everyday life is that in any moment, I could make someone feel like they matter yeah, or make them feel like they don't matter. And when you know this, it doesn't take much time out of your day or much energy to really Unlock mattering in somebody and saying, you know, thank you so much or recognize appreciating them out loud, expressing your gratitude for small things that they did and receiving it. So what I talk about in the book is, you know, a way to really kind of foster this mattering is to develop the skills of what I call interdependence, meaning having others rely on us and relying on others in mutually beneficial ways, in healthy ways. So I'll give you one little example. Like my neighbor, we had a storm, I was out of town and one of my trees came down and she sent me photos and she she's an elderly neighbor in her 80s. And I said, thank you so much for doing that, for sending these photos. And I brought her a bottle of wine. And she said, I don't want your wine. She said it nicely, but she was like, I don't want your wine. This is what neighbors do. And I think we've become so transactional in our relationships that we won't allow ourselves to lean on other people. Yeah, What I've learned is in this sort of cycle of mattering, if we don't accept help, if we don't accept other people adding value to us, we interrupt that critical cycle of mattering.
1: Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I love this idea that you can make somebody feel that way. And that is like the best antidote to your own mattering because you said mattering means that you know that you matter to somebody else and so you can give that away which means you can guarantee that you feel like you matter every day because you're there for somebody else and my mom when I was growing up was suffering from depression and I remember asking that question like what's the secret to happiness because I thought I wanted the opposite of depression right and one of my rabbis said to me the opposite of depression is not as much happiness as it is purpose. We want to feel like we contribute. We want to feel like we were of value. We were in service. And I was like, oh, that's really beautiful. And that's always stuck with me. And that's really similar to what you're saying. And that the never enough thing is the way of trying to get back to that feeling that we contribute for who we are, not because we get good grades or have a cute amount of material possessions. And uh it's an important thing to think about. And I also think about for women entrepreneurs uh, who I meet, there's this feeling of scaling and building, and it's got to be a million, four million, ten million. 10 million. And I think you have to ask yourself based on everything you and I just talked about, what really feels good? And just because somebody arbitrarily throws a goal at you, like become a multi-million or whatever the thing is, what actually feels cozy and yummy and satisfying and beautiful. And then maybe you rethink like the ladder and you rethink the wall you put your ladder on. And maybe there's more balance, I guess, because there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and there's so many beautiful goals and there's so much beautiful good that comes out of people having ideas and goals. But every time you talk about these little moments at the Clementines, or the conductor, I'm like, oh, like I lean in because my whole self feels alive, you know? So I love that you are a model of that in so many different ways. And so thank you for sharing all of that. What's one thing that you're going to do like this weekend that
0: you feel like will be that little island in your, in your day? I am carving out time with three of my close, close, close friends. And I'm so excited about that.
1: That's so awesome. I love that you just like already had that at the ready. Tell everybody where they can follow you so they can continue with you on the journey, but also where they can buy the book. And then we'll put the link in the show notes.
0: Great. So you can head over to my website, jenniferbwallace.com or on Instagram at Wallace. I have little snippets and Also check out thematteringmovement.com. There are lots of free resources for people there. I
1: definitely will put all of that out there for everybody. And you're so beautiful and like lovely and smart. It's really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jennifer.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me and for this great conversation.
1: Thank you. Wow, how incredible. she! That was a conversation that I think we all really need. Here are the takeaways. Number one, healthy achievers have a high level of mattering. They feel valued by their families, friends, and community for who they are deep at their core. Most importantly, they're dependent on to add meaningful value back to their families, to their friends, and to their communities. Number two, we need people in our lives who we can be vulnerable with, who we can open up to, who we feel unconditionally loved and supported by. Not only are they like a receptacle for our stresses and they help us absorb the things that we go through, the ups and downs, but they also remind us of our values and our unconditional worth. Number three, we need to invest in our relationships outside of the home for our children's benefit. Number four, when you understand that yourself, you're mattering, your worth, and your value is just as important as everyone else in your home. That's not being selfish, it's being self Number five, when we feel like we matter for who we are at our core, we show up to the world in ways that are so positive. We want to add value, we want to be a great neighbor, we want to achieve so that we can make a positive impact on the world. Number six, let yourself lean on other people. If we don't accept help, if we don't accept other people adding value to us, we interrupt that critical cycle of mattering. Number seven, unlocking other people's mattering makes us feel like we matter. It's the human experience. It's these small mattering moments that say, I see you, I value you, and you add value to my life. In any moment, we could make someone feel like they matter. Thank you so much for listening. I can't believe that next week it's going to be 800 episodes. There is no way that I would be doing this without you. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. We have so many good shows coming up, so many good episodes. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, wherever you're listening. And if you feel so inclined, please leave us a review. We're actually going to be doing a huge giveaway next week. So if you want to get ahead of it and leave us a review, I'll give you a big hint that if you leave us a review, you're going to have a few days to do it next week. But if you get ahead and do it now, we're going to be doing a really cool giveaway next week and giving people some gift cards to go spend some money on yourself at Nordstrom's or Bloomingdale's plus some other items that are some of my favorite items. Um, you also get a signed copy of my book. So many fun things happening to celebrate our 800th episode. So go ahead and leave a review now and you can share about the show as well. If you would like to do so, that would be amazing. If you can think of someone who you think would be a fan of this episode, please share the link and email them the link or post about this on your Instagram. Before we go, I just wanna remind you that you can join me every single week for two hours every single week We are gathering together as a circle of incredible women who are really mattering to one another, who are really making space to witness each other. And there's some coaching to help you find your unique gift and learn how to get paid to be yourself. So if you want to be in on that, go to kathyhover.com slash quilt. I would love to see you in there. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have an amazing weekend.
2: Now I like the snow Cause I take you A